Good morning, friends, and welcome to our Grace DC online worship service. We're so glad that you have joined us today for worship, whether visiting for the first time or you've been tuning in all along. And today is a special day. Today is Mother's Day. So happy Mother's Day to all the moms out there. We see you and we are grateful for you and the tender loving care that you give towards your children and your families. And for various reasons, we know that this can be a tough day for many uh, that long to be a mom. And due to the pandemic, we haven't been able to be with uh, our moms as we so choose. And that's been the plight for many of us. But regardless of where we are today, we understand that God calls us to worship and that God wants to be with us. And so let's use Psalm 145 now for our responsive reading. Let's read it together. I will exalt you, my God the King. I will praise your name forever and ever. Every day I will praise you and extol your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. One generation will command your works to another. They will tell of your mighty acts. They will speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty. And I will meditate on your wonderful works. Let's pray together. Jesus, you are king. There is no other king like you that is abounding in love, that rules justly. Lord, you are in control of this world and its affairs, and you have made a lot of people unto yourself. So we praise you, most high God. In this time that we have today, we ask, invigorate our hearts and renew us even. Give us a deeper sense of who we are by showing us a deeper reality of who you are through your word. And we pray all this in your name. Amen. I am to worship here 
Friends, now we want to enter into a time of confessing our sins together. We learn through Acts 3.19 that God calls us to repent and to turn to him so that our sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come. So we want to believe in this promise that refreshing will come as we confess our sins together. Let's do so now corporately. Do not withhold your mercy from me, O Lord. May your love and your truth always protect me. But troubles without number surround me. My sins have overtaken me and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head and my heart fails within me. Be pleased, O Lord, to save me. O Lord, come quickly to help me. Father, thank you for being ever so gracious to forgive us of our sin. Uh, this is your mercy. And Father, you have given us the assurance of pardon through words like Psalm 32, in which the psalmist writes, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you, and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Thank you, Father, for forgiving us in Jesus. It is in his name that we pray. And all God's people said together, amen. Friends, this past week, we learned about Ahmaud Arbery and how his life was senselessly taken from us. I want to offer up a brief prayer for the bereaved family and for all of us that have been touched by this tragic reality. Let's pray together. Holy Father, you're sovereign, which means that you rule over all. And in your sovereignty, Lord, uh, we know that you are just and that you're loving. Right now, we pray that you are with the Albury family, that you will bring comfort to their hearts, uh, that you, Father, will bring around them a community of love. And we know people are marching in the streets. They're giving their voices and declaring justice. And I, I do pray, Lord, that your will will be done where there is justice brought to this case. But the deeper matter is that you care for the people in Brunswick in the surrounding area. And that this will be a time where your reconciling love will be active. And that where the enemy wants to come in and bring discord, that you will bring unity, Father. I pray for those um, that brought harm to Ahmad that you will have mercy upon them, that you will shine light in their hearts, that they will see what they did was is indeed wrong. And Lord, we thank you for stepping in and disclosing the video so that justice could be done. And that goes along with your word, Father. Uh, our sin is not hidden, 
We don't just get away uh, with murder. We don't get away with our faults and our wrongdoing. And this is why you sent your son so that we will all have a redeemer. So we pray that by the power of your spirit, that through this, Jesus, uh, that somehow hearts may be changed, that they will know the God of justice, the God who is upset by this, but also the God who is love and the, and the God who does something about the situation. So Lord, we know that you're merciful and that you're gracious and that you're able to act whenever all hope is lost. And right now, God, it's, it's hard to know what to pray for because we have seen another brown life in the streets. We have seen another innocent person slain. And so, Jesus, I pray that we will continue to cry out uh, that you will bring protection. I pray that you will calm our fears during this time. For we do have reason to be afraid for the life of our children, especially for the black and brown folks who now are afraid of their, perhaps their children going out to take a run uh, in a place where he lives. God, this is why we appeal to you, Jesus, to watch over our children, to watch over the Albury family, to watch over us in our churches, Father, that we will put our trust fully in you and that we will cry out to you that you will have mercy, that, that you, Father, will bring your redemption, that you, Jesus, will ultimately uh, bring your reconcil reconciliation, your reconciling love, that our hearts may be bound together in Christ. And Lord, we pray this in your name. Amen. Today's scripture reading is Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 through 22. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each one of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Happy Sabbath, Grace DC family and friends. And thank you for making the time to be here. One of the commands or exhortations in the book of Hebrews is that we wouldn't forsake meeting together. It was important back then during their trial, just as important for us during this trial. This past week, I was looking at some of the sports moments that get noticed because of their puzzling but amazing nature. As you watch them, you're both confused and astonished. 
One of these moments involved two football teams, the New Orleans Saints and the LA Rams in 1994. The Rams were trailing in the fourth quarter and there were just a few minutes left and New Orleans needed to punt the ball. They punt the ball and it appears to be a routine touchback. The ball hits the end zone. The players begin to move toward the benches. The announcer declares it's a touchback except for one player. He notices that the ball didn't go out, nor was it touched. And he picks it up and he begins to run. And it's not until he's past the 50-yard line that even the announcer says, wait a second, what's going on here? And he goes on to score a touchdown. The second one uh, involved a middle school team in Texas, a clever and controversial play, where the quarterback, uh, again, this team is behind, and the quarterback is behind the center, and he pauses and looks over to the sidelines as if he's confused, communicating with the coach, and then he taps the center and says, give me the ball, and then just walks through the defense. Everybody assumes he must be taking the long way to the bench and takes off running and scores the touchdown. Both of these moments, uh, if we texted them, right, uh, one would be, huh, uh, with a question mark. The other one would be, wah, with the exclamation marks, right? Puzzling, but amazing. Faith has this side to it as well. It has a confounding side to it. And we see it here in Hebrews chapter 11 as we go through this catalog of faithful saints and believers, especially in the founding fathers, there is this challenge of confounding faith. And we see it in two ways, the way faith takes them to the brink, takes them to the edge, and the way faith turns over preferences. So let's look at both of those things together. First of all, the way faith takes us to the brink. When my eldest daughter, when our eldest daughter was in middle school, one of her friends contracted E. coli, and the entire school community began to pray um, as she got very, very sick, first at home, then moved to the hospital, then moved to the ER. And a couple weeks after that, my wife and I went to see the parents, and they recounted to us that last night in the hospital with tears in their eyes. They said the doctor came to us and said, I think it's time that you say your goodbyes. And any parent, you just can't imagine, right, what that would be like. And uh, they go in, say their goodbyes, uh, leave, uh, not leave the hospital, they're still there. And then hours later, she begins to recover. And she is a healthy, wonderful uh, young woman today. They were taken to the brink of their faith, to the very edge of their faith. And we see that in this story of Abraham offering his son Isaac as a sacrifice. But first, we have to deal with the moral problem that stares us right in the face. As we read this story, and you've heard of this story, it's natural to say, how could God require a father to do such a thing? How is this any different than we read of a horrible, violent event and someone says, well, God told me to do it? 
how do we reconcile this? And how do we reconcile it with the Bible where over 20 times God denounces that sort of sacrifice? In fact, in the book of 2 Kings, when Israel was engaged in this sort of uh, behavior, we read, uh, they burned their sons and their daughters as offerings. It was evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger, and he removed them out of his sight. Well, there's a few things that help us untangle what's going on here. The first is to consider the full story. Now, if you walk in to a middle of a, a movie or open up to a middle of a book, chances are you're going to read something that doesn't make sense to you, that might even horrify you? How could this character act this way? Well, one of the gifts of the book of Hebrews is it reminds us that you can't quarantine the Old Testament from the New Testament, and you can't quarantine the New Testament from the Old Testament. Theologians call this the continuity of Scripture. If we're really going to understand these accounts, we have to see them as one whole. We have to uh, dig into the Scripture and see them in that light. The second thing is we need to consider the key questions, like who? Who are these characters? Well, the Bible tells us that uh, Abraham is the father of faith. Jesus Christ says that everyone that believes and follows him is a child of Abraham. When you look at the family tree, he's at the beginning of it, of believers. But he's also the friend of God. This is stated in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. He is someone uh, in whom God has uh, bestowed his confidence, his intimate thoughts and conversations. He loves Abraham. He moves toward him in a special way. Second of all, who is Isaac? Well, we're told that Isaac is the one and only begotten son of Abraham. Now, Abraham had other sons, but Isaac is the one son that he and Sarah, his wife, had biologically. And more so, he was the son that was promised miraculously to them, and the son who was prophesied to be the line from whom the Messiah would come. And then lastly, we could ask where. Well, where they are, uh, theologians say that the best uh, understanding is Mount Moriah, the Temple Mount. This is where Solomon would build the temple. And the temple was the place where God and man met together. It was also the place of sacrifice. So when we put all the, these things together, what do we have? We have the father of the faithful voluntarily offering his son, giving his son away, the son whom he loved. And we also have um, the one and only son walking up a hill, carrying wood, willingly offering his life as a sacrifice. And all the indications show that Isaac wasn't a young boy at that time, but he was a young man. He had a choice. He had a volition. And what are some conclusions we draw from this? First of all, that this is a unique and unrepeatable event that happens with the father of faith and the son of promise. It is an illustration that God uh, puts forward to us. In many ways, it is a parable that God uses of faith. Second of all, we conclude that God is the one, unlike the other gods of that age, who will provide the sacrifice. 
and the sacrifice will be none other than his one and only son, Jesus Christ. And so here you have God taking his friend Abraham into his confidence and saying, friend, let me show you in his earthly terms as possible what it's going to be like for me to give away my son. And so Abraham is taken to the brink, but not over it, because it's only God, the Father and the Son of God, that will cross that brink, because God's hand will not be stayed against his son, where Abraham is delivered and Isaac is delivered. Now, many of us feel like we're on the brink of our own faith during this pandemic and quarantine whether you're a parent with young kids, whether you're single and isolated by yourself, maybe, maybe you've thought, you know, I'm losing my mind here. I'm getting pushed over the edge. And faith often feels that way. In fact, if you feel and you're in that place, you're in a place where the faithful are always led. God must take us to the brink and the edge of our faith. Why? Because he's cruel, because he's a sadist, It's because your faith and my faith needs to be purified. It needs to be tested. This is why God does these things. And he has to teach us a tension that we live with in this world. And that is there is a tension between the promise of God and the command of God. Abraham felt it. Well, God, you promised me this child, and now you're commanding me to offer him as a sacrifice. How do I understand that? How will the Messiah come to be? Or it may be for you, you say, well, God, you promised that you would provide for me. And you command that I don't worry about that, but I've lost my job. Or God, you promised that you will bless our family. And you command us to be loving and patient, but we feel so exhausted and spent. How will we do those things? And there's two things that we see in Abraham about his faith that can help us. First of all, we find a reasoned faith. It's important to realize that this was not the first test that Abraham had ever gone through, nor was it the first time that God had demonstrated his faithfulness. As we learned last week, Abraham is asked by God to leave everything he knows. But then God blesses him and richly prospers him. Abraham experiences um, attack from kings. His nephew was carried away, but we find God delivering him. Abraham is barren. His wife Sarah is barren. But we find God providing a miracle child. You see, Abraham had a pattern, a history of God that he could look to. This wasn't blind faith, blind faith. Like the Apostle Paul who said, um, I know whom I have believed. Abraham had good confidence. And you see this in the passages in the book of Genesis. He says to his two servants as he's ascending the hill, uh, me and the boy will be back. He says to Isaac, God will provide a lamb. And then we find in the book of Hebrews that Abraham reasoned that God could even raise Isaac from the dead if he needed to. There was a ground to his faith. And this is amazing because you see what's happening here. 
God in the life of Abraham and Isaac is giving us a shadow, a glimpse of the gospel promise itself, the gospel that you and I can trust in, that God will provide someone for our sin, the ways that we have fallen short, that he will provide a son that will bear atonement and sacrifice, and that son will raise from the dead. And as we learned on Easter, that resurrection is a receipt to us that his sacrifice was accepted, and God indeed has wiped clean the slate of our sins. It's amazing. We have something better than Abraham to reason our faith with during this time. But the second thing is we find a yielded faith. The theologian John Owen, who lived in the 1600s, also a time when there was great pandemic, once said, sometimes there may appear to be inconsistency between God's commands and God's promises. Nothing but faith bowing the soul to divine sovereignty can reconcile us. There are some lessons of faith that can only be learned as we humble ourselves. There's, uh, you know, some tunnels that you have to stoop down, and then that tunnel then leads you into a great vista. This is what yielded faith looks like. But that second point also leads us to the second main point, the way faith turns over our preferences. Now, in Near Eastern culture, the firstborn was given certain privileges and responsibilities. And this was so if the father was unable to act, whether he had got sick or whether he died, the family would still be secure. The property would be secure. And this is a custom we find God commanding in the scripture, but it's also flexible. There may be times where a father doesn't uh, give that blessing to the firstborn. But either way, you can imagine what an expectation it was to these parents and child's children. It had been going on for thousands of years. And that's definitely the case with the characters that are mentioned here. When Isaac grows up, he marries Rebekah, and they have two sons, Esau and Jacob. Isaac prefers Esau for that blessing. Rebekah prefers Jacob for that blessing. But either way, how they feel, God decides that the older, uh, rather the younger, will inherit the blessing, and the older will serve the younger. In the life of Joseph, as he uh, gets married and has children, nearing the end of his father's life, Jacob, he brings his own sons. And instead of uh, giving that blessing to the firstborn, Jacob, Israel, gives it to the second, and it displeases Joseph. In faith, they are called to lay down their preferences. And laying down our preferences is not an easy thing, and it's especially not an easy thing when those preferences are good and right preferences. Our own culture uh, in its founding document says that we have a right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. You could argue these are good and right things. Or within the church, maybe there's certain preferences you have, and you can base them on biblical good reasons. Maybe it's for the style of worship or the kind of preaching that ought to go on. Or maybe in your own home, you can reason good and right uh, how to organize the refrigerator or how the family ought to spend free time or, or the division between alone time and free time, whatever it be. Uh, we can have preferences that are good and right 
yet God calls us to lay them down. Why? Well, one reason is because God sees things that we don't see. Maybe you've had a day like this. I've had a day like it where um, I'm just struggling. I'm, uh, I feel like I'm at my brink. I'm annoyed, especially during this quarantine. And I have to go to the store, whether you're walking or driving, and you come up on a crosswalk and someone, um, you know, you, you're determined just to get through. And this person lays down their preference and just waves you on. Or maybe you're in the grocery store and they say, listen, you have less uh, groceries than I do. Why don't you go ahead? Now, they have no idea how that little act of laying down their preference is going to impact you that day. The grace that you experience in it, the, the way it, it softened you, the way it took you back to a place of sanity and love. God sees things that we don't see when we lay down our preferences. But second of all, uh, there is a way slowly and almost invisibly that good preferences can become oppressive laws. And you see this in the life of the religious leaders in Jesus' day. Many preferences and traditions they had ended up being the foundation, ended up being uh, the studs, the framing of their house. And when Jesus came to challenge them, it felt like the house was coming down. You see, their preferences became the object, just like us, where our preferences can become the object of our joy, the object of our rest, the object of our freedom, the object of our satisfaction. And so God must call us, he calls us to lay those things down because faith offers something different and it often something, offers something better. And we see it preeminently displayed in the life of Jesus, the faithful. If anybody could make an argument to hold his preferences, it would have been Jesus. He's the son of God. He is the creator along with the father and son of all things. He owns all things. He possesses all freedom and all power to exercise that freedom. He's a king of the highest order. And he is sinless and pure. He's only loved. He's done no wrong. And what we find, though, is that he turns over those things, doesn't he? The creator becomes a creature. He lives his life with the same sort of limitations that you and I face, the same sort of circumstances like pandemics or social upheaval, poverty. He lives a life where he's misunderstood by virtually everybody all the time. He lives a life where while he is sinless, he lays down that preference that he might bear our sin and become an atonement. The Son of God has the, the grounds to maintain his preferences to the very end, but no one is more open-handed. No one gives them up more mightily than the mighty Son of God. My wife and I, Meg, just finished uh, the first season of the show, The Watchmen, uh, based on the comic book series, and it really is a, a clever uh, show but also has some profound lessons in it. And at one point, there is a daughter who seeks the help of her father. She wants um, to be given, vested with superhuman powers. 
And her reasoning is that she can bring good to the world. She can help with the environment. She can help with the economy. She can help with justice and righteousness. And he's willing to do it. But at the last minute, he changes his mind because he perceives it's for narcissism, narcissistic reasons she wants to do it. And he ends up ending her life. And when the people around him say, uh, say why did you do that? He mutters something in uh, Latin and ends up saying, it takes one to know one. And it takes a narcissist to know a narcissist. Now consider Jesus. Jesus has those superhuman powers. But he is the furthest from a narcissist. He's the one that gives up his life that you and I might be raised up. In a sense, becoming superhuman. Having a moral beauty. Having a hope. Having a strength. Having convictions that are beyond our own. His power given to us. But how was he able to do that? Let me close with these two observations. One is, Jesus made his highest preference intimacy with God, nearness and communion with God. That is, he was in the habit of daily letting go of all these other things. And you can see it in his life of prayer. You can see it in the way that he talks about his relationship with the Father. He was constantly letting go, testing these other preferences according to his intimacy and relationship with God. That that would be first. And second of all, Jesus made his mission, what the Apostle Paul would say, to be faith expressing itself through love. His preference became that others might be loved. Now, maybe you've had the experience before, I'm sure you have, where you have a preference, but you lay it down for someone, and you don't do it in a haughty way to say, okay, I'll give in, but you do it in a quiet hidden way. And you end up seeing how laying that thing down um, blesses them, where they feel loved, where they feel treasured, where joy comes into their heart. And that becomes um, so much greater than ever any preference that you would have had. That act just outshines, right? Outsizes that little bitty preference that we were holding on. These are the sort of things that faith can do. And so you see, God must take us to the brink. He must turn over our preferences. If we might be of those that uh, of, are of this hallmark faith, you know, this hall of fame faith, it will puzzle us. It will astound us. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for your spirit. We thank you for doing work in us that we would not be able to do on our own. We thank you for what the eyes of faith can see. We thank you for your Son, and we thank you for your Spirit. In Christ's name, amen.
let's receive God's good word of grace. May the love of God, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, may the fellowship and intimacy of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Amen.